Welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast in which I, Toby Haydock, comment along to an episode accentuating the positive and see if I can try to guess what my special guest's favourite things about each instalment are. Hello, my name is Jeremy Bentham. I'm very pleased to nominate as my Doctor Who story for Toby's uh, Enterprise, Marco Polo. And so we've done it. We've reached the end of our journey to Cathay, which is what this story is called in a lot of the paperwork. But I'm still going to call it Marco Polo. Um, I'm actually less bothered about that than I am having trawled through the paperwork than I am about calling the Edge of Destruction the Edge of Destruction, which, <clears throat> having just done that for too much information, which is one of the related podcasts to this, um, I've, I found myself calling Inside the Spaceship, but I don't like that as a title, and it's relatively new to me. I say relatively new, about 20 years. And I also refuse to change my mind. Um, <laughs> even though when it was first mooted, we call Inside the Spaceship, Inside the Spaceship. I was like, definitely not. That's just silly uh and now i kind of think well actually uh and especially as the edge of destruction is just the title of episode one uh and you know we ignore the radio times 10th anniversary special when it calls lots of other stories by uh the, the first episode title so the romans is the slave traders or whatever and we go well that was just that's just really poor um we, we don't do that except for the edge of destruction when we do um uh, and the Daleks, well, obviously it's easier to call that the Daleks than the Mutants because, you know, there's a story called the Mutants. There were no other stories with the Daleks in <laughs> no. uh, But yeah, Journey to Cathay, but it's Marco Polo, isn't it? It's Marco Polo. Um, but anyway, um, it's, it's, you know, episode titling, uh, whatever theory you have, it's a theory with a hole. So Marco Polo, let's... Um, well, we can certainly agree that as a story, it's mint. Um, let's let's uh, uh, let's um, press play on the final episode of this epic tale that we are taking alongside one of the founders of Doctor Who fandom and one of its greatest historians, Jeremy Bentham. We're going to see what happens when there's an assassin at Peking in three. Two, one. Uh, so yeah, so I've—I mean, I put this off. I've been supposed to do this a couple of times. Jeremy very kindly was very quick to uh, to, to to record his contribution, although you know, with necessary with, with unnecessary apologies about or, or the filming of it. And I had a couple of goes, and bless him, he's, he's actually filmed it in lots of different locations uh, around his house, uh, apposite to what he is choosing as his favourite thing. Um, now, I don't know if they're in this, because I've, his, his, no word of a lie, I, I, I've, unlike a lot of Happy Times and Places, I've, I have done these episodes as a viewer uh, in, a rec in recent weeks, in order that I'm not coming in totally blind, and because there's no subtitles on uh, on uh, recons to aid me with following as I talk at the same time, um, and I mention that because oh, because there's a couple of aren't the off-screen stills of these later episodes that were taken by a viewer in Australia, uh, which we which were all we had before uh, before we got the the telesnaps in terms of you know 
the broadcast program but i i'm not sure they've made their way into this uh into this uh recon they, they may have done i'm not sure um i'm not sure if they were available to the reconographers the reconstructors um it's lovely seeing the tardis in a forest clearing ah and here is ling tao uh paul carson who i've looked up uh, what i know in my little database oh but they've killed poor old Kuichu because he's no longer useful to part and you can see there's a knife in his back there but that would have been cut by the australian censors um so Kuichu gets killed I, i've got a feeling uh tigana kills him in the book but i might be wrong um but anyway he dies because i was gonna say he's no longer useful to the plot he would be useful to sort of dob in tigana which he would i'm sure he would have the craven soul that he was i'm sure he would have uh, caved in during uh, interrogation but he's been killed um by an overzealous extra guard it's slightly and it's, it always leaves a slightly nasty taste in the mouth there where some you know unknown uh you know non-speaking character with with very little agency all he does is just rather thoughtlessly and callously butchers someone beautiful shot there in that telesnap of uh of, of various supporting artists through through one of the uh, uh, the decorative sort of walls with bits bits missing um, I don't know what they're called I'm sure there's a name um, but you know what I mean it's a, it's a wall with holes in it because it's pretty a partition some form of decorative partition uh, but anyway I've noticed a few bits of shooting through various glorious bits of the set this is maybe where Clive Doig's and the camera crashes into a pillar comes into play and the doctor with his glasses. I always like it when the doctor wears glasses. I don't know why. I'm not a glasses wearer myself. I found myself having to look at uh, stock cube boxes. I sort of take them slightly further away in order to read what it says on the box. For, you know, I do that thing where you where you slightly adjust, which I never had to do. But I went for an eye test, and they said my vision was was fine. It's just just, just that comes with age. So it's not that I identify. It's not that I need. Um, uh, it for, for me to be able to identify with the central character for the doctor to be a glasses where i just like it and as an actor uh a, a pair of spectacles always gives you i'm never one to resist a prop um uh and i noticed there's a there's a uh there's a there's a small person uh, as as kubla khan's um sort of factotum uh which is uh again very progressive to have that sort of uh, representation on screen, uh, especially as the the character doesn't actually, you know, is just is just there to, to be sort of present, because um, uh, again, there's not enough representation. Um, it's getting better these days, but uh, I know from my partner's work with the disabled artists networking community that uh, uh, small small actors, you know do struggle for for work and representation and all sorts of other stigma and anyway uh, yeah we, we don't need to get into another but it, 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 I, I, I know a couple of comics who would absolutely berate anybody rightly for anything sexist or racist or homophobic or transphobic that aren't afraid to do jokes about um, and using a word beginning with m that i would not use to describe a small person um and seem to think that's okay somehow it's interesting where people draw different lines uh but i i i love i love a couple of elements of this i love um the fact that the doctor 
beats the Khan because the Doctor can sometimes be doddery um, and and you know a bit of a klutz. You, you, you know, he's klutzed his way into the Khan's affections by having a bad back. He's sort of a bit klutzy in the gunfighters, and and, uh, uh, and and sometimes in historical situations, the First Doctor sort of almost accidentally prospers. Um, whereas here, he's you know he's very wily. He's good at the backgammon, but that then pays off later but i like the fact that he's he's trouncing the car and i sometimes don't like it when the doctor's over good at things i i did take you know i was i was never quite sure about matt smith's doctor who's so brilliantly alien in uh the lodger suddenly being good at football because i as the kid that wasn't good at football at school liked the doctor to be not good at the things that people were traditionally good at but you know the alpha males at school weren't exactly busting out the black the backgammon so i i think it's fine for the doctor to be to be good at backgammon and to be winning so comprehensively which makes you think oh well we're going to tidy up this part of the plot he's going to win the tardis back and of course then the wonderful twist to that is that he doesn't and then he has another really weird laughing fit like he does at the end of episode 1 which is again a sort of an element of the doctor's characterization that we never really visit again the doctor laughing like a loon in the face of utter disaster uh, maybe there's something in his in his chinese tea i don't know um and i like marco's role in this marco really properly is the hero uh, of episode seven uh actually he you know he learns and he does the right thing in the end and is not punished for it and he actually gets the implication is that he kind of gets what what he did what he deserves have having you know having learned and he never really did the, he never knowingly did the wrong thing apart from nick in the tardis no that was that's pretty bad but in his eyes his need is greater and he doesn't think he's consigning the others to disaster you know uh, and, and as he said to him, you know, a couple of last episode, you know, if if I believed you about the time machine thing, of course I'd give you the key. This is a this is an effective set. This, you know, again, I wonder how it would look in the studio. But the the perspective seems to be very nice. It seems open and airy compared to some of the interior stuff, and a lot of that's down to the lighting, of course. Um, but we really feel like they're an ensemble, don't we? We feel like we've we, we've you know the, the the TARDIS crew are part of Marco Polo's caravan essentially these people I've never seen that photo before look at those costumes they are amazing and yeah we 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 didn't have I didn't think we had any photos of uh Ling Tao uh until we got the telesnaps so I might be so I'm wrong there there's so many more photos of Marco Polo than I thought we had, and I thought we had a fair few. So seeing some of these, I'm seeing some beautiful shots that are that are new to me. But yes, Paul Carson, uh, I emailed his, not his widow because they were divorced. I've, I've I've emailed the lady that he was married to when he did Marco Polo, uh, uh, and I've looked up what i know about paul carson who plays ling tao who as i mentioned a couple of episodes ago is one of the actors whose whose history is unclear and who the internet certainly get wrong because he's not also a canadian sports anchor um here's that lovely twist we think that really nagging slightly annoying part of the story in a, in a good way um that our heroes oh look at that shot of marco and ian with ping cho in the background as they argue about it that's a great that's a great piece of composition um and that's from a telesnap, so it would have been embarrassing had that been some re reconstructor's wizardry, some loose cannon, uh, beautiful tapestry. But it's not. It's definitely uh, from off screen. Um, and we know that 
Boris is saying knows where to put a camera. He knows how to move a camera as well. That's what we lose, his wonderful sort of creeping camera that he employs sometimes to suggest menace and atmosphere. Although this story requires different things, but yeah, he knows how to move a camera. Um, but yes, I, I, I love that that part of the story the, the, the TARDIS, you think it's got wrapped up because the Doctor's got himself into a situation where he's won beautifully, what is it, the entire produce of Burma for one year. What a line. What a wonderful thing to win. Um, and then we have the resolution. But 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 that we think that story is going to get wrapped up. No, in the crucial game, he loses. So the, the TARDIS, he has lost the TARDIS still, even though... The atmosphere in terms of the danger to the regulars is not what it has been earlier. That's good. That's developed. They're, you know, they're welcome at court. The Doctor is getting on with Kubla Khan. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've really made some progress in their interactions with Marco. But, but the Khan doesn't want to give the Doctor his TARDIS back, and that's completely understandable. And again, gorgeously, he's not doing it because he, he's being mean or despotic. Is that he's been given a brilliant present, and he and. And he's won it legitimately in a game of backgammon. Um, he does a lot of... He's like a Cheshire cat, is, uh, uh, is Tigana. Wily. Um, uh, uh, and then we have... We have oh, there's a couple of things I haven't mentioned. The wonderful fact that the Empress to Kublai Khan is Claire Davenport, who you would probably know best for the Faulty Towers episode, uh, where he does the where he does the, um, uh, the 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 fire alarm and Sybil is uh, uh, and, uh, and and she's a sort of she's a pleasantly complaining customer. Voluminous is how Jeremy Bentham described her. She's a larger lady, which again is a is a wonderful contrast to the. Uh, the, the slight uh, diminutive figure of uh, Martin Miller. Uh, and that's a lovely piece of casting, and it's a lovely dynamic that, uh, you know, the Khan has this rather bossy wife. I think that's rather fun. Uh, uh, but and, the, and then we have the resolution, don't we, of the, uh, the Ping Cho story where she's been dragged to marry this guy, um, uh, which, you know, we, we look at and go... Well, that's not very nice for a, a, a young woman to be uh, to be forced into a union that she doesn't want uh, with, uh, you know, a senior gentleman that she's never met. Although, you know, uh, another side of that is to go, how, who are we to impose our, our cultural expectations on, 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 a, on another culture who do things that way? If, you know, if you if you want to be uh, like that, um uh, but uh, I think I certainly fall on, you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, it just shows that sometimes these things are very difficult because the thing that is more empowering for women uh, in in our Western view is that they, well, no, I think I think it's pretty much I, well, is it though? It's difficult, isn't it? Because that's that's us imposing our values, isn't it? Um, but I think. It's a it's a value of some merit that people should be able to choose who they marry. But the, in even saying that, I could be very, uh, you know, very much favouring uh, what I, what I grew up with and patronising another culture because of my. So it's all it's it could all be a bit of a minefield, which is why I think people should be about to muse on stuff without being accused of uh, some sort of. Uh, uh, beastliness anyway um 
maybe I just imagine all that um, because I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, but anyway, oh, there's a shot through a chair. Or is it through a... No, that might be through a, uh, a holy, holy as in full of holes, a Swiss cheese partition. Um, so Marco's had his own moment. Oh, yes, and here we are that Ping Cho's husband to be. So they've cut, it's very nice and budget saving that we don't see the big dinner, but they come out of the dinner in order to hear the glorious news for Ping Cho, who we're sort of happy for. I mean, it's a bit hard if you're the guy that she was going to marry, but he has drunk a potion. What is it? He's, he's drunk a potion of quicksilver and something else to, to, to basically mean that on his wedding day, he, uh, he has enough... Uh, he has enough vigour coursing through him in order to um, rise to the occasion, which is all pretty grim if you think about it. Um, uh, he overdoses on that and dies. <laughs> so it's a comedy death off off screen. Um, lack of noise is off uh, for the husband-to-be. So, so he becomes a sort of rather amusing uh, victim of... Uh, of uh, uh, the the uh, the lack of knowledge about because Quicksilver's yeah anyway um, about uh, for, for whatever it's a comedy moment he drinks he drinks a potion to invigorate him and it sends him and it topples him off his perch uh, and uh, so that gets Ping Cho out of the situation and there's a shot of her here with Ling Tao and I don't know if that's a composite and she says I would like to stay here now does she give Ling Tao a look there is the suggestion that she's gonna she's gonna hook up with Ling Tao or I think that happens in the book maybe but he I mean he's the one that kills Tigana in the book um the young officer yes he escorts her to the quarters but does a do we get a bit of a suggestion that they might have an eye for each other or have I imposed that upon them? It would be interesting to see if they do a bit of, oh, I quite like the look of you acting. And yes, the young officer, Ling Tao, who I started talking about several moons ago, uh, Paul Carson, who I'm sure Warris Tain told me had done some model work for some cigarettes. Uh, I've, I have contacted his the lady to whom he was married at the time. And what I know about him was that he was an American born in Texas. So yes, he's doing RP in this. Of course, he is as actors, Jen did to have to do. Although Martin Miller's not. Martin Miller, again, it's a really, it's a really bizarre thing, isn't it? But a bit like, um, you see certain actors popping in often with anglicised names, um, because again, that was kind of how things were done, uh, which you would hope that people didn't have to do now. But people, you know, anglicised their names. But I mean, God, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, you know, a, a lot of Jewish actors did that in Hollywood, didn't they? All sorts of people whose names become more, more um, sort of well, anglicised is wrong because I'm talking about America, but you know what I mean, westernised, whatever. Um, so why was I talking about that? Yes, because Martin Miller is is is, is speaking in a you know he's he's, he's got he, he never lost his Czechoslovakian accent, and the same with people like George Pravda, you know. So you have a, a Castellan who's Czechoslovakian, which is which is interesting. We sort of go, well, that's but why why aren't the different countries on Gallifrey? You know, there are different accents and countries on Earth, so why aren't there on any other planet? But it seems slightly odd to us in the same way that it seems odd if somebody as a northern accent people still comment on it which is which shows that in many ways you know that a lot of our embedded little prejudices still need a, a, a lot of work I, I think i think there are more regional accents on telly in the past 20 years 
but you know it used to be that all actors wherever you were from when you went to drama school certainly at this time you would uh, you would uh, you know you would you would your your natural accent would become rp and a lot of actors i know from that generation who were born talking with a particular a dialect now speaking RP because that's what they learned to do at drama school. Oh, and talking of changing names, I mean, it, it wasn't just actors of um, foreign extraction. And in, in fact, some, uh, you know, kept their names in order to sort of advertise, I'm available for those sorts of parts. So, you know, there were decisions to be made. But Mark Eden's real name was Douglas Malin. Um, but Mark Eden was seen as a, I think, you know, as a, a two single syllable things is easier off the tongue, you know. Um, so there's all sorts of things that actors considered in, in those days and prob uh, prob probably less so now. I don't know any actors who change their names for reasons of that name sounds cool uh, in a way that actors did then. Fewer actors, I think, change their names now. Some have to do because of equity rules, but it's more fashionable, I think, to add your middle name. Uh, so if, if there was another Toby Haydoke now, they would call themselves, you know, Toby um, Orinoco Haydoke. To, to, to differentiate themselves from the other Toby Haydoke. Um, fortunately, I'm in a position where nobody's been bestowed a name as stupid as mine, so I've not had that issue. Um, but Paul Carson was born in America. Uh, so he was an American actor who'd obviously learned his RP over here, um, uh, who worked over here. And I believe he died in 1989 back in the States, uh, having done various bits of telly in the 60s he's in a a once lost dennis potter play called emergency ward nine uh uh in in the late 60s but what he did between the 60s and, and his death in 89 i do not know but maybe his 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 former wife will be able to tell me maybe she won't reply but i've bunged it out there to see what happens I've got a feeling that my CD of this, I remember getting it. Oh God, I used to I used to go up to Forbidden Planet in Manchester on the off chance that the audio book of this had come out. Because in those days you never got sort of exact dates or knew where everything exactly was. You certainly, it was the early days of getting stuff at the touch of a button. In fact, I don't think you can. I think it was before Amazon. Yeah, because I remember when I first tried to buy stuff off Amazon, I wasn't in in the house that I was in when I listened to this. So yeah. I had to make journeys, especially into town, on the off chance that Marco Polo was there. Uh, and it wasn't, and it wasn't, and it wasn't. And I, when I finally got it, I think that bit where Marco and Ian meet in the corridor, it started to slightly jump. So even when I had it, I never quite listened to the whole thing. Oh, and the Vizier, who was a sort of comic character telling everyone to kowtow, jumps in front of Kubla Khan to save him. And the Vizier is Peter Lawrence, one of those actors that I never that I sort of thought had long stopped acting by the time I was looking around for actors because you didn't see a lot of those people on telly anymore. But actually, he was still around. He died in 1998, but he spent the last 20 years of his career pretty much touring, uh, playing Jacob and Pitafar in uh, the touring production of Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and was still a working actor when he died in 1998 on holiday in Tunisia. Well, <laughs> I know this stuff. Ha-ha! <laughs> Um, in his 70s uh, um, and yeah it was a busy busy you know it's a very much a character part Pitifar is a, it was uh, Ian, the sort of part Ian McNeese has played in that production so a sort of Gabor Baraka kind of part really um, uh, and uh, oh there's a a, a telesnap of a, of a female supporting artist hiding from this rather exciting scimitar battle choreographed by 
Derek Ware, who I knew a little bit, um, and and it's a big moment, and it's the you know it's a it's it's the major bit of filming that Darren Nesbitt and Mark Eden did before they went into the studio for episode one. So they've done this ages ago. This is already committed to uh, to to film before they start doing uh, doing uh, episode one. Um, so that will have been a, a good-looking production. I noticed low cameras there, and between the you know a, a whole body, a whole standing Marco at one end of the studio, shot between the legs of Tigana. So there's some 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 great shooting there. And Derek, when you had to do a fight scene, and, and being done on film, that will have looked pretty impressive. But um, but Tigana, he's shot with an arrow in the book. In the TV version, he impales himself on a spear. So it's a kind of suicide. Not many suicides in. Uh, in Doctor Who, Bellboy kind of kills himself, doesn't he? Max Stale in uh, Image of the Fendal. Um, uh, so and that's that's pretty grim, isn't it? And and I uh, and I and it somehow feels a bit more appropriate than Marco killing him. I'm I, you know I, I that would have seemed sort of against the sort of humanitarian element of Marco, even though he's from you know hundreds of years ago and standards were different. I think it it just feels slightly better and slightly grimmer and oddly kind of noble in a way in a sort of the perverse way we look at nobility but often uh, you know um th th such things are see uh, sort of through a, the oddly an oddly perverse prism that somehow noble to kill himself instead of being taken prisoner and yet it kind of does and i love this this shot of the tardis was done on film but the the high shot and i think it says in the script doesn't it that at the end we see that we see the quartet against a against a space uh, space backdrop but uh, and you know Marco comes good and he says you know I, I gave him the key and Kubla Khan instead of telling him off says no I'd have I'd have given I'd have given them the key too and actually it kind of feels like you could have ended Doctor Who here which which uh, you know it's not out of the question there's no cliffhanger into into the next story I'm watching episode one of this the, the keys of Marinus if you know which is a which has a few mistakes in it it does seem like a different kind of program but that's partially because you know all the pictures here are not therefore warts and all we've got we've got we've got none of the warts so you know there could have been all sorts of clunkiness and banging cameras and you know clive doig's tumbling uh columns but it has a bit of majesty because because we can imagine it and we've got the lyricism of the scripts we've got the beauty of the performance we've got the gorgeousness of the sets uh, and we don't have any of the drawbacks of 60s tv production so i'm certain that i am uh, my my spectacles with which i view this even though the pictures are black and white there's a rose tintedness uh, sword fight arranged by Derek Ware. I like those sorts of long-winded credits. Makeup supervised by M. Farigi. Um, oh, I thought that was gorgeous, didn't you? I think it's a, it's a humane and thoughtful story. I think it's really intelligent. I think it, it has it, it elegantly seeds the educational remit into it. You get to know all of the characters. I think you feel like you've been on a journey with those people, and that they are that they are part of your, you know, that that you adventured along with them, and that, that our TARDIS crew and those those guest artists were, you know, part of a part of a gang who had proper relationships that had formed over time. Um, 
it's got a nice mixture of you know violence and horror and wit um you know the the, the fact that the past is such a sort of deadly scary place and the environment itself uh, brings with it its own inherent risks i think uh, uh, i think there's so much in that I, I i cut myself off last week um but i i think and i am so strongly aware that absence makes the heart grow fonder uh, and you know you always you always fantasize about the thing that you cannot have but i i, I feel that marco is 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 the strongest story of of season one but maybe i'd feel that if we had all of this and we couldn't see the other seven episode epic uh the daleks and could just hear that but i don't know or maybe it's because you know part of what marco has you know that's stronger than the daleks has is that its dialogue is is so much better and i think its characterization is so much better but then you know it doesn't have exciting exterminating robot things which we appreciate much more because we can see them in a way that perhaps what we can't see about Marco Polo is is the least of it although that said we know those sets and costumes are beautiful but maybe the fact it's a story without space stuff uh, means that it, it, it would perhaps seem a trifle slower I don't know because because actually the Daleks doesn't seem any less slow because it's an older production to a modern eye so I think you already have that compromise Oh, it doesn't matter. I could be wrong. I'm quite happy to be wrong. I'm quite happy to be wrong, by the way, about my. I don't know. I banged on about it a lot. I just. I. I. Uh, and and by the way, to set my stall out, I I am a very weirdly liberal. And the comedy club I run was, I think, the first to uh, actively seek to have diverse lineups uh, and not all white lineups and not all white male lineups, uh, and uh, is you know is very much at the forefront of um, uh, trying to encourage uh, acts from different backgrounds of, 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 of different uh, ethnic backgrounds and different sexualities and genders and all sorts of other things uh, way before um, it was being done on television and panel shows and things like that. And, a, you know, a tiny little place in a corner of Manchester that uh, isn't terribly important, but it's just to show that i'm not i'm not one of the those uh people going uh oh blooming wokery and modern stuff i just don't see uh i i i don't see the keenness with which many people want to wag a finger at the past as being particularly helpful or actually particularly smart um and and the uh the sense of righteousness that comes with it i perhaps perhaps um winds me up a little but i'm aware that that but in the same way that calling the edge of destruction inside the spaceship winds me up a little bit it's because it's new and it's not something i'm used to and uh, perhaps it says uh, you know i'm i'm reacting and don't like a, a challenge to my orthodoxy so i'm i'm prepared to be wrong but i'm but but hopefully uh, but i i hope i'm not bad uh, but I, I don't think i am because i try i try i try very hard not to be and everybody I encounter, I, I, tr I hope that their day is better for their having done so rather than worse. That's all I hope. Um, so allow me to be wrong if I'm wrong. Uh, right. So, and I just wanted to give a little bit of informed perspective on it as well, um, which I sometimes think is is more important than um, performative righteousness. Uh, now then not that everybody 
that finds stuff problematic is doing performative righteousness either i have to point that out uh you know people with very good intention intents and um absolutely just morals um are uneasy about such things and want to point it out and that is that is quite right too both of us can be right uh, but anyway uh, i'm just hearing some noise at the front door so i'm going to pause now and then when i get a moment i'm going to choose my thing and see what jeremy bedtham chooses It'll be seconds for you. It might be a few minutes for me. Ah, well, you see, I told you it was split seconds for you. The uh, the other members of Haydock Towers had just returned from a Sunday afternoon walk. Oh, basking in the vitamin E-rich glow of nature's benefactor, the sun. Taking in that fresh air, getting some healthy exercise, interacting with other people, whilst I have been immersing myself in <laughs> uh, a 50 nearly 60 year old piece of television that doesn't actually exist in its original form anymore uh, <laughs> uh, and getting uh tie myself in liberal knots trying to bring a little bit of finesse and nuance to the culture wars in in the way that only uh, 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 a middle-aged white man can so anyway, we've got to hear from Jeremy Bentham. Uh, but I actually, the return of my other half, we had a little bit of a chat about um, the credit, I think, in the production guide is, um, in the production paperwork, is Kubla Khan Spittoon Bearer, uh, who is the, the small actor I was talking about, the diminutive gentleman, whose name I couldn't remember. Um, he was called Harry Dillon. Uh, and he's not one of the Chumblies, uh, who are the other sort of legion of small actors uh, that are later in the Hartnell era, also, all sadly, no longer with us. And like the uh, the, the extras from uh, Penny Sir's Oriental casting agency, uh, all of the small actors came from, I think she was called Peggy Lister's, and it's some, if the name is something awful, it's, it's Peggy Lister's midgets or Peggy Lister's performing towards it's, it's it's something horrible um uh and they all we were talking about this interest they all i think maureen o'brien said that somebody in the production of 1984 no that's it, it was leo mckern because he'd worked with angelo musca who who was one of the chumblies who then went on to uh be in the prisoner with patrick mcgowan and leo mckern was in it found out how much the, the, the person who ran this agency for small actors was creaming off the top of their wages um, he actually, I think, reported her to equity and, and had something done about it or tried to um, because they were exploited, you know, because there's no reason it should cost any more to run an agency for somebody because they're a performer, um, uh, you know, of, of, of well, a, a, we, a small, small, small people is the phrase we use now. I nearly said of restricted height, but I don't think that is the parlance now um, either. Um, it's so you know it pays to try and be uh, sympathetic to the correct phraseology anyway um that opens up all sorts of interesting things as well so i felt it right to uh, invoke harry dillon by name as kubla khan spittoon bearer um who is the yes uh, the first of his kind to appear in doctor who um but i can't find any record of him after 1967 um and, you know, that's an area where I would say we've improved upon perhaps less in, in, in a number of ways 
in terms of representation and the way that such people have viewed and spoken about and uh, used within the entertainment industry than we have in other areas which I may have touched upon in in an awkward and stuttery way during the cast of part the the passage of these seven episodes anyway listen up everybody before we exit Cathay let us find what Jeremy Bentham has to say about episode seven assassin at Peking but first I have to choose my two favorite things my favorite thing about episode seven and my bonus thing so I think my favorite thing about episode seven is the game of backgammon not only because it's hilarious and the line about the doctor winning the entire produce of burma for a year is glorious and and the fact that it shows that a lot of doctors uh, you know slight distance and what can be seen as not quite being up with the program is perhaps actually a, a ruse to to mask his true cunning and intelligence and it's a lovely bit partner and i always like to see hartnell um sort of getting chummy with somebody and, and, and having a bit of fun with, with a fellow character or actor. And I, I like the bounce between the Khan and, and the Doctor and the fact that it looks like he's going to win the TARDIS back and he fouls it up. Because um, uh, uh, you think you see where the plot's going and then it doesn't. And then, of course, Marco and the, 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 the Travellers have to get the TARDIS back in other ways. Uh, but mostly because it's funny, but also because... Of, of how it serves the plot and I think it it, um, it it surprises you then I think when the doctor has to come out and you don't even see it happen he just comes out and goes uh, actually I lost it um, I think it has to be the game of backgammon and because you know Marco and Tigana and Ian had that chat, chat about chess early on and, and, and the way that sort of that you know that, that all of the character interaction is a bit like a game of strategy and, and logic and uh, and, and that then translates to a, a, another kind of board game later. You know, it's it's got metaphor, it's got it's got symmetry, it's got uh, it's got it's and it's got an elegance about its its placing. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think uh, Jeremy will choose. Am I choosing that? Yes, I've got to choose that. I haven't mentioned the design, have I? But I think Jeremy also already has, so I can't do that. He's also mentioned the script. Uh, uh, but I feel, you know, I would feel wrong, wouldn't I, if I, if I didn't, um, you know, invoke the designer Barry Newbury, the director Warris Hussain, the writer John Lucarotti, and the whole cast at some point. Um, but I know that Jeremy has picked an awful lot of those because he's been quite methodical about picking the key areas. But so if not. Oh, so what can my mate? What can my whole thing about Marco Polo be? I mean, it is a. It looks like a glorious, epic production. I think Jeremy will probably choose something to do with some of the regulars because they are uh, an important part of the makeup and obviously often overlooked in this podcast because they're not the new bit that is particular to this story. I think I have to choose as the whole overarching thing my bonus thing because it touches on any elements i have to choose character because the character of marco polo the 
character of Tigana, the character of Ping Cho, the way those characters influence our regulars who are all characterised in really interesting ways. And I think John Lucarotti writes all the regulars very well, but he uses them within the drama well as well. And all of the characters. And, and, and then the character you know comes with that how they talk as well and the dialogue that they get but but the way that he uses character to tell story i think is particularly helpful in a seven part epic where you can't have great sweeping shots of deserts because you're in you know lime grove studio d or whatever uh, and partially because it's one of the things that hasn't really that the jeremy hasn't in his methodical and brilliant and scrupulous way of sort of assessing the merits of this that's one thing he hasn't honed on although he's touched upon it in other ways. And I think character also then by, you know, gives us a little bit of scope to celebrate the cast because I haven't picked out any individual cast members. And yet I think in another story, any of Mark Eden, um, Darren Nesbitt, Xenia Merton and Martin Miller, I think in particular, but then even Tutti Lemko and Claire Davenport with her hilarious cameo as the as the Empress are all actors that in other stories I you know would get get singled out if I was if I was struggling for an episode and they're uniformly good um, and you know Mark Eden is brilliant and and Marco is a great character um, and very even-handedly done. Tigana is a great villain and you know yes Darren Nesbitt does does that softly spoken purring calculating manipulative stuff but he's also he's not just horrible you kind of you kind of go well I sort of get where you're coming from uh you know he's a villain with a purpose um uh, and with his own justification and Ping Cho is lovely um and yeah then you've got the funny cameos as well um so character and I think that's part that, and, and that comes out in the dark I nearly chose the dialogue I mean, Jeremy chose the script last week, which yeah, touches on that, but it's not just uh, the script, but it, but it's so rich in dialogue. And sometimes it's got all those dialogue scenes, which are quite long by today's standards, but because they're told through character, because they're told with the little bits of brinkmanship that happen because of the different characters having their own different agendas and perspectives. So I'm not particularly happy with my choice, partially because I just want to go the cast or I want to go the script. Um, but Jeremy's chosen a lot of those big bullet points. Um, and I think it's obvious if I say the cast. So I hope Jeremy doesn't now go the cast or I, like Tigana, will throw myself on some non-speaking <laughs> supporting artist spear. Um, what's Jeremy going to choose? Uh, oh, no. I recant. I love the dialogue. I love character. Do you know what I'm going to choose, everybody? And I'm, I am going to throw myself on the spear because what I choose, I know for sure Jeremy isn't going to choose because you know what I'm going to choose, ladies and gentlemen and everybody else? I am going to choose Jeremy Bentham. I'm going to choose my guest as the, the bonus thing about Marco Polo because Jeremy Bentham wrote that book the early years so he is synonymous to me with the early years of Doc 2 even though Marco Polo isn't doesn't get its own chapter because he had chapters only on the Raymond Cusick stories because those are the ones he had photos for but uh, but 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 nonetheless that book sort of has the whole of the atmosphere of the genesis and early years of Doctor Who within it uh, and he was our gateway to those black and white years and the people who made them uh, and he brought with him a, a sort of scholastic element to his fandom you know he wasn't a fan who was sort of all about trying to trace the fictional earth history which I, I love if you do that I love it it's not my sort of thing it's, I'm, I'm much more interested in the sort of 
you know the, the the culture of television making and the people who made it and a uh, and, and, and a sort of thoughtful approach to script and, and analysis and all of those sorts of things. That's very much up my street. But also, I think Jeremy Bentham, there were others too, and I'm not discounting them, and you'll hear for some of them during the course and lifetime of this podcast. But Jeremy was very much the, the kingpin, and also because I, I've, I've met him subsequently and liked him, and I, he still has a certain, carries a certain, or he has a, there's a certain awe about uh, uh, Jeremy because he is such a sort of old-fashioned sort of gentleman type and obviously radiates uh, intelligence and softly spoken sort of d decency and and, uh, and and enjoyment of the show uh, and led to a lot of the stuff that is done today by, you know, people like Richard Bignall, who today has taught me two or three things I, I didn't know about something else that we were just batting back and forth on a, on a WhatsApp about something else, uh, who just quietly gets on with it and is a brilliant, brilliant researcher. And all of, you know, all of that sort of historical stuff that we know about Doctor Who has very much been led by, you know, the keenness of fans. And when the quality of those fans is of the quality of Jeremy Bentham, we all benefit. And, you know, they leave behind a legacy of stuff that... Um, you know, cannot be discovered now because a lot of the people they spoke to um, can't be spoken to anymore. And a lot of the stuff they uncovered, if they hadn't uncovered it when they did, might not exist now. Uh, and as I say, they set the ball rolling for the work that continues today. So he's not going to choose himself because he's a humble man. But I am going to choose Jeremy Bentham and those fans who were got by the likes of Marco Polo. Uh, and that, that, you know, those early stories lit the torch for them and the torch... I'd say they handed to others, but they don't. It keeps burning in in their own house, and we've come and we've come and lit our flames from their still burning torches. So yeah, for the first time ever, my bonus thing. Sorry, John Lucarotti's characterization and dialogue. My bonus thing for Marco Polo is my guest, Jeremy Bentham. Who says I can't be a bit of a maverick sometimes? Uh, so what's Jeremy going to choose? <laughs> really brilliant if he goes, uh, me actually, I'm amazing. He, he won't. The high point of episode seven, Assassin at Peking. Probably not going to be too surprised, Toby, to know that I'm choosing the action scene that takes place. The big sword fight shot on film between Tigana and Marco Polo as they duel it out in the grand finale of the story. And it's sort of a turning point for Doctor Who, this scene, because a few weeks earlier, when episode four was recorded, was when this issue of the Radio Times came out, the one that infamously has the Doctor, Tigana and Polo on the cover, but not the characters of Ian and Barbara and Susan, who are very much relegated inside. It's known that William Russell complained to his agent, and the agent in turn complained, complained to the BBC, and the dictate came down from above that we should make better use of someone like William Russell in the series, actually making use of the heroic qualities that presumably he was hired for. So really, this is the last time that the ancillary characters get to play the main part in resolving the denouement of the serial, the climax, the high point, what it's all about. From then on, if we look to something like the Aztecs, Ian is far more involved in the climatic fight there, even though he doesn't actually directly kill Ixtar, any more than funny enough Polo kills Tigana, because Tigana runs on his sword. So it's for this reason that not only did we get a superb fight scene choreographed by Derek Ware and Douglas Canfield, which doubtless the end uh, earned him his director's spurs. But also you got a point at which Doctor Who ever slightly changed direction 
and became more like the Doctor who we were going to know in the future. Ah, now that is interesting. He's, he's, he's recorded his uh, bonus as a separate file, so we will hear that shortly. So I chose the backgammon, he chose the fight. I suppose I didn't choose the fight. It's hard to, it's hard to choose a fight if you can't see it, I guess, was my uh, reason for that. But I, I am very sympathetic to his choice, and I do like the observation about how it's the last time an ancillary character becomes the sort of hero and that's interesting um uh, that yeah mark because marco is very much the hero of marco polo and that's quite right but that's not sustainable in a story that's about doctor who and his his companions uh, although i think ian does still get plenty of heroic stuff too i think barber is probably the least well served of the regulars in marco polo for which john lucarotti um atones in the aztecs by giving her a glorious amounts to do um but yeah that's that's a fair choice and it's not always nice to give Derek Ware a nod because he was one of the, I think the very first person from Doctor Who I met and I knew him up until he he passed away um I do have an interview with him that I did somewhere over the phone about the sword fight in Marco Polo which I'll dig out for one of these related podcasts I'm sure but it might be for patrons only he said plugging patreon on the mainstream release because I've been told to do that more because I don't do it enough and it's the way of things these days. Jeremy Bentham is not going to choose himself as his bonus. What will he choose? Let's find out. Uh, Please bear in mind that my other half is sitting very patiently on a sofa, not saying a word or moving as this that I promised would be only a couple of minutes continues. And um, I've just seen that Jeremy's video is, is five minutes long, but it's right because I feed it separately into the final recording so she might be able to move and I'm telling her that indirectly because we only communicate secondhand through podcasts because we've been together for a very long time. So we come then to what Toby has asked me to describe as the bonus aspect of this story. What makes it cumulatively such a masterpiece? Well, we've touched on the fact that it is an absolutely magnificent game of chess between all of the characters who appear in the story, from Tigana to Marco Polo to the Khan to Lingtao, the knights, the pawns, all those that move around ever so magnificently during the course of this story. But it's not Doctor Who as we know it. This is the odd thing about Marco Polo, is that our characters are very much in the formative stages of what we would eventually come to know as Doctor Who in its relationship with its companions. And in a weird way, it's much closer to Sidney Newman's original concept for Doctor Who, where our four travellers are observers on the path of history, not the main contributors to it. All those roles belong to people such as Polo, to Tigana, to Pincho. They have the key roles to play, as does Lintower, as does the car. Our four characters are just not being used in the way that people will become accompanied to them, accustomed to them in later years. The Doctor, for example, man of great learning, great intellect, but throughout this whole story, he hardly gets a chance to demonstrate that intellect. In the beginning, he suffers from altitude sickness, heat exhaustion, fatigue, he's banged up and down on the back of a horse, and there's displays terrible arthritis when he's meeting with the Khan. All he does really throughout the story is to rage at Marco Polo and almost describe him as a a mindless savage. 
with very little opportunity to show any of that brilliance that we would later come to identify with the Doctor. For the greater part of the first four episodes, he does little more than just tinker with a soldering iron in the TARDIS itself. Susan, the character who has, I suppose, the greatest role to play in the story from the point of view of separating Pincho from her loyalty to Marco Polo. And in a way, you can see there is such a warm and genuine chemistry between uh, Carol Ann Ford and Xenia Merton, a chemistry that really gets reflected in the story. She's playing much more of a leading role and less of the screamer and person, in a way, you could the, the ex echoing the frustrations that Carol Ann Ford later put forward as her reasons for, for leaving Doctor Who. This is probably Susan's finest hour in the series. Barbara. A character who really has done more to advance Doctor Who forward in the course of the preceding couple of serials by the fact that she's used her own intuition, her own emotional intelligence to remind the Doctor that he can't just exist as an island on his own. He's got to trust other people. She's the first one that first susses out Tagana for what he is. She's the person who tells Marco Polo occasional truths that he may not necessarily want to, to hear. So in a way she's playing a role that later on be transferred far more into the role of the Doctor himself. Finally, Ian, the most underused character in the entire serial. Most of the things that we would later come to identify Ian Chesterton with, all the bravery, the valiant nature, his uh, ability to handle himself both physically and mentally in situations of stress, are curiously absent here. It's Polo who slaughters the guard holding Barbara a prisoner in the cave of in, in the cave of five hundred eyes. It's Ling Tao's men who dispatch the um, the Kiju when he's in, he's intercepted by Ling Tao's men in, in part six. And guess who has the major sword fight at the end of the story? It's Marco Polo who finally squares off against Tigana. You can possibly understand why William Russell's agent was a little bit uh, perturbed about the fact that they got Sir Lancelot in the series but weren't using him so much. And that's as may be because you get the feeling that maybe after this story uh, Ian Chesterton spent a lot more time discovering the TARDIS's gymnasium and working up his uh, six-pack ready for his next major confrontation which would be uh, Ixtar in uh, John Lucarotti's second serial for Doctor Who, which is the Aztecs of course. So again, my bonus aspect of this story is to say Make the most of the fact that you have got such a magnificent set of ancillary characters in this story because it doesn't happen that often. You've got Pincho, you've got Tagana, and of course all the way through the nagging question that takes seven episodes to answer. Marco Polo, can you save your call? Oh, he's so good. For those of you listening to the podcast version of this, he did that in front of a chess set. And the final thing he did was topple over the king as he made his final flourish of a point. I told you Jeremy Bentham was great. Uh, and uh, he proved it by filming a thing that, you know, we, we currently don't have the pictures because it takes me a lot longer to do the video versions of these and the podcast. So I've, I've prioritised my audio releases. Maybe uh, when I'm you know, in my dotage, I've kept all the video files. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm just prioritising time. Anyway, don't need, we don't need to worry about that. We're listening to the podcast. But Jeremy did film all of those contributions on different backdrops in his home, apposite backdrops to uh, uh, reflect what he was illustrating in the way that Marco Polo uses symbolism and 
metaphor to make its points. So he'd really thought about, which is why he's so cherishable. Uh, his point there, very interesting about, I mean, he sort of went to re-emphasize his, his point for part seven about the ancillary characters, but he, he started off by talking about how this was the, the show in development. And I, I do find that fascinating watching those early years is that we can look at the threads that you know connect them to the show now but there's also blind alleys that they go up there are things that they decided to do that they don't do there are things we say they decided to do that they just thought were a good idea at the time that were never done again some out of policy some out of evolution some just f because so many different people contribute to how the show is done and some things occur and continue and some things don't and and it's really interesting you know, watching, you know, 14 weeks into something that's now 60 years in and, and, and the similarities and differences that combine and divide those different iterations of the show. And there are definite through lines, you know, but there are also things that you go, oh, that's interesting that that might have been, you know, in a sliding doors time, that might have been something they did more of or less of. I don't think I agree with Jeremy that uh, that Ian does the least because, he, you know, he goes to look for Pincho and he has those, he's the great sort of, conscience in the ear of Marco in a way so I he gets he gets a, a fair bit to do he perhaps doesn't get as much action but I don't think he'd have killed the guard or Kuiju anyway because because he doesn't even as I say he, does, he doesn't kill Ixter in in the Aztecs because we don't really want our heroes dispatching people um I mean I, I think it would have been nicer if Kuiju hadn't died at all but that's um that's just showing you know life is cheap in those times and that adds to that the past is like an alien planet because it is you know deadlier than than we than our day-to-day -day life you know you can be a slightly grubby merchant and and not risk arbitrary death at the end of a blade of one of the good guys uh in in a story set more recently um uh but so so that's yeah i think that's uh I think that's part of the joy of, of Doctor. And in choosing Jeremy, I was kind of alluding to that, that, you know, we, that we have those links with those times when there was no no reason Doctor Who should be what it is now then, and yet so many things that were done then make it what it is now. And I, I think it's lovely and fascinating um, seeing those things develop. So, yeah, I, I love all of that, and those are, those are very good points. So... Um, uh, and uh, yes, interesting that uh, <laughs> Jeremy says, uh, and uh, William Russell worked on his six pack, which I know is metaphorical, but um, actors in those days didn't have six packs. And uh, it's a very, uh, I, I think uh, um, uh, it's, it's very instructing for us to look at some, a, fr a friend of mine was is watching something on, uh, BBC Four at the moment um, with Michael Bryant in it. It's Colin Baker's first first uh, major role on TV, and said, you know, it's lovely to see Michael Bryant. You know, has a normal body shape. He's a leading man, um, but isn't you know toned and honed and hasn't been to the gym or whatever because actors were allowed to be like that in those days. And uh, I, again, this is what interests me about what our priorities are. Is that I know you know casting has become much more egalitarian in its outlook in terms of race and gender and colour and representation but in terms of body shape it's miles behind and actually the pressure put on actors 
from probably members of the profession who think they're really progressive in many ways and rightly so because they're upping representation still very unconsciously make sure you know that even a sort of dad character is played by an actor in a slim fit shirt that fits very nicely um so it's in you know it's instructive about what our priorities are and how they shift and how what we think of as being liberal in some areas is not in others and that i think is what i've rather cat-candidly tried to illustrate as i've disappeared down uh uh various alleyways in terms of and i've not necessarily particularly heard anybody scold marco polo massively but obviously john bennett in talons and weng chiang comes in for a lot of opprobrium and I, and i think my reaction and my you know fixating on that is is in the same way that Marco Polo is a product of its time, this podcast is a product of me perhaps probably overreacting to the most vicious voices of, of that kind um, because I, because my brain is a certain way, to be honest. I'm, I'm you know, my the, the spectrum, that the, the end of the spectrum that I am on means that if I see something that I think is wrong, I feel the need to address it and, and point out that it's wrong and blah, 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 blah. And so that's, that's me. And that's me at this time wrestling with my recent discovery of that sort of thing. So, you know, we're all, we're all bottled in a little period of time where certain things are, are very important and certain things are not. So the things we overlook, it's not necessarily because we're being bad to overlook them it's because we're fixated uh in other areas so i'm absolutely prepared to go i've probably overreacted uh, and that that most that one because most people aren't yelling at marco polo anyway but also anybody that does have an objection uh to that that practice of I suppose we call it yellow face now that that we absolutely wouldn't do now and a lot of people coming for that aren't doing it because they're um being performatively righteous they're people who just go well i find that uneasy and i don't particularly like it and uh, i don't want to be reminded of a time when that was done and that equally is fair enough and i would be wrong to i would be wrong to criticize anybody of that and it probably does speak also to how you know um you know that western culture is very as 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 often you know seen itself as the the blank temp template for normality or whatever and all of that and you know we do have we do have colonial pasts to atone for so but i yeah as i say i just i think i when i stiff a bit of self-righteousness and 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 also inaccuracy it makes my brain go into overdrive um so i've probably overcompensated uh but that that means i am just caught in a particular time where you know you 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 can't flick through twitter trying to look for fun jokes about the the lack of advertisements for the centenary special without somebody you know accusing a writer or a creator or something of an ism when occasionally they're just you know um d doing something out of necessity or within the context of when they were doing it but you know i think we're better if we're conscious um of of the sometimes unconscious biases that we have and so calling them out is also equally important so as ever things are things are complex but mostly they're of their time and uh, marco polo is certainly that but i think i hope irrespective of that 
that even now it's a it's a it's a it's a shining example of much that is superb about Doctor Who. Um, I mourn its loss. I would love to see it, and yeah, there would be production techniques and choices that would be perhaps uncomfortable to behold now. But I think, you know, I think we come to a good place when we can see beyond that and uh, in, enjoy it for what it what it mostly is, which is, you know, people working more than at the top of their game on a, on a program that is that has always been slightly more than a sum of its parts and even when it's an example of a story that you wouldn't do now anyway a pure historical there's still so much that is recognizably doctor who and yet at that stage in doctor who's production there's also stuff that is slightly strange and alien to us the characters are finding their feet everybody's finding their feet about what this show is but there's enough in there um that still makes it you know 14 weeks in or whatever uh it's more than 14 weeks isn't it uh oh no yeah um to uh to be a a much missed uh early example of the show for which you know we do not need to we we can we you know we can definitely feel the loss of uh and i do yeah i think it's a a really strong example of the show and i'm glad we have the bits that we do and i'm glad we have uh, those people who were lucky enough to witness it at the time and maybe somewhere uh, hidden in uh, some palace vault somewhere <laughs> uh, is uh, perhaps yeah perhaps uh, Marco Polo didn't give Kublai Khan the TARDIS but he said but what the doctor did before he went was he uh, he ran off a load of things from his uh, whatever that thing is he puts on on his head in the end of wheel in space and he, he's 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 actually he's he's got a, a, a recording of the whole adventure Kublai Khan you can have that so maybe somewhere in in uh, in some storehouse somewhere next to a next to some jewels and a, a painting here and some trinkets from the east there are seven film cans uh, <laughs> of uh, the adventures of Marco Polo and Doctor Who but um, I really enjoyed that uh, apart from bits where I tied myself in in uh, knots, but um, uh, as I say, that's uh, I think that is that is we will have to just accept that that is the time we're currently in, and those are the things that need that that are that are whether they need it or not that are occupying my thoughts, and my thoughts battle themselves out in my head and come out of my mouth, and that's what broadcasting is. So I hope it's been okay for you. It's been a long old journey with a few segues here and there. Sidney Bromley, who was a friend of William Hartnell. Did I mention that? I can't remember. Uh, uh, and still some mysteries to be had. Uh, uh, but it's been an exciting journey journey to Cathay. Uh, but uh, it's over now. Thanks to Jeremy Bentham, who's bo who's as, who's, who I've asked to plug. Uh, and that's what we will end with. Jeremy Bentham's plug. Well, Toby, your final request to me was to consider something I'd very much like to plug by way of a wrap-up. And um, I'm not very good at plugging anything that I do. It's just not something that I'm very comfortable with. But what I would like to plug is the Doctor Who figurine collection, which has been published now for a good many years and is, in my eyes at least, fulfilling a similar role to Doctor Who magazine in firing the imaginations of the Doctor Who fan community of today. 
but the plug I'd like to put forward and to plug in and hopefully switch on will be a plea that they might consider doing the historical characters as well as the sci-fi monsters and characters because you know there are so many good villains out there from the classic era characters like Captain Trask, Cherub, Johnny Ringo and of course Platoxel. The principal and foremost amongst them I think I would make Tigana. Okay this isn't Tigana and I appreciate that in the fullness of time it takes longer and probably is more expensive to clear actors than it is to clear likenesses of faceless monsters but it would be something that I really believe would bring a little bit more of Marco Polo back into reality because there's so much of it that we could seriously do with recovering. Well, and isn't that appropriate? Because I have a nasty feeling as I record this. Jeremy um, provided this, I think, over a year ago. I had a flurry of uh, contributors um, and I've had to balance, you know, when I release Hartnell's missing stories and, and other stuff. Um, the Doctor Who figurine collection, um, I think, is now like Marco Polo, m missing in action and incomplete because, sadly, Eagle Moss, who made them, um, have gone bust uh, in 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 very recent weeks, uh, leaving some friends of mine uh, with without some regular work that they had and a lot of collectors very unhappy. So um, that's almost a, tra a tragically appropriate note for Jeremy, who's done this so brilliantly, to um, you know, to, to to invoke the idea of uh, uh, humanoid figurines that uh, now we know will it was something that he could in the future a future he can envisage, but one that we know will now never happen in much the same way that uh, we're looking back at a story that we know did happen, but we cannot now. Uh, envisage in full so there's a strange and cursed symmetry about that uh, unless somebody else wants to uh, pick up the mantle and uh, make some humanoid Doctor Who figurines and if that's the case I expect to see a laser printed Tigana there's something you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't have anticipated being a thing never mind when Marco Polo was made probably when uh, when uh, 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 Doctor Who's original run finished um, but the things that people can do at home now so um, there's a challenge for you out there figurine makers we want a, we want a, a, a Tigana and a Marco Polo and would it kill you to do a Kublai Khan spittoon bearer while you're at it uh, but there we go thanks to Jeremy Bentham who even unwittingly because he wasn't to know this when he recorded that provided a strange kind of tragic bookend uh, to uh, the very rich uh, contents he has provided us over the course of the seven episodes between bookend one and bookend eight of his contributions to, well, well no, nine, because he did the bonus thing, to his contributions to this podcast about Doctor Who and the many happy times and places, some of them sad and scary and dangerous, visited by Doctor Who and his crew and, of course, that wonderful explorer, Marco Polo. Well, thanks ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock, and my special guest, J. Jeremy Bentham. I'm grateful to him, of course, and 
to the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfendahl, Stephen Moffat, David Trainier, Frank Shales, Risto Matti Sarillo, Barry Platt, Adam Parker, Graham Knott, Nathan Martin, Rick Moran, Gavin McLean, Ian K. McLachlan, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Chris Iam, Siobhan Galichon, Jason Gorman, Paul Dunn, Chris Dunford-Kelk, John Deere, Rob Dawson, Peter Crocker, Richard Chalk, Paul Cook, Jenny at Bluebox 99, Nigel Bromley, David Anonymous, Chris Arkell, Tim Arding, Nick Tedston, Neil Tate, Richard Straw, Christopher Meredith, Rob Leonard, Ronald Hayden, Peter Harness, Chris Bone, and Peter Burns. The music is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. Oh, well, um, if you would like to join uh, their number, the patrons, uh, one of the bonuses that they get is to have their names listed in the credits, uh, is to become a patron yourself by going to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. It is a bit coming cap in hand and it's uh, against my natural instincts, but I'm assured it's the way these things are done. And... uh, if you are a patron, you get three releases a week. So if you like this sort of stuff, um, you know, you I think you get what you get your money's worth. Three pounds uh, per month gets you, uh, yeah, three releases a week. So that's uh, 23, 6, 9, so 12 releases a month. <laughs> so you, you do the maths. Um, it's about 25p a release, isn't it? Um, you also get bonus material, exclusives. There's one podcast, far too much information that is entirely exclusive and a monthly AMA and, you know, direct contact messages and things like that. Um, and, that, you know, that's all at the, the lowest tier. There are things for the higher tiers. You know, it goes up to, uh, I don't know what it goes, I, I do know, I, I did, it goes up to about £200, but don't worry, nobody's paying that. So that's why my cap is still resolutely uh, glued to my hand. Um, uh and if you don't want to commit to the monthly thing, which Patreon is, as I say, £3 a month, uh, 10% off if you sign up for a year in advance, uh, how, whichever tier you're at. So if you are, if you do pay the £200, you get uh, get uh, tw- £20 off. <laughs> aren't, aren't you lucky? <laughs> um, but yeah, if that uh, monthly commitment seems like too much, and I totally understand that it is, uh, I mean... Everything's just skyrocketing price-wise, and as these are, you know, free, you you may well just prefer to keep it like that, and that's totally understandable. I'm grateful to you for listening. But you can nip to Kofi occasionally, as as some do, uh, if there's one you've particularly enjoyed or you've had a particularly flush month or, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock, and there's no commitment there beyond that, and you can pay in any denomination you like. Um, so kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But what costs you nothing, and as I say, I totally understand. Thanks for listening. Um, just spread the word. Uh, any words on social media that are nice, uh, word of mouth, chatting to your friends, especially if you're outside of the UK. Most of my listeners are in the UK. I hope uh, I hope to have some stretch beyond that, particularly my friends in the States and Canada, where I've always enjoyed uh, performing and mixing at conventions. Uh, and uh, you can uh, you can put five star reviews wherever you uh, get your podcasts from and perhaps uh, a few lines as well to uh, let people know what they're in store for and you know any extra sort of literature and writing and any five star ratings 
uh, gets these things algorithm-wise all finely tuned and uh, it, it makes yeah makes makes them look very saucy to any passing punters and uh, I'd like them to want to lap up my sauce. I didn't like where that went. I'm, I'm going to stop there. Thanks. I'm also on Twitter at Toby Haydoke and these podcasts have their own feed at Haydoke Podcasts and my comedy club Excess Malarkey is at Excess Malarkey on Twitter and it's on Instagram and is on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey the first Sunday of every month and live in Manchester every Tuesday at 8pm. I'm sort of having to do this uh, sneakily as my other half snoozes on the sofa and uh, I need to get episodes 7, which is this, uh, and 6, which I'm going back to to record the credits for. So there you go, people who... uh, to follow such uh, things, uh, the closing credits for episode 7, because it was the latest one I edited, uh, have actually been recorded before the closing credits for episode 6. I know, it's all lies. Um, and I'm uh, uh, yeah, having to hurriedly get these out before episode 6 essentially goes out <laughs> live. So look, I enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed Marco Polo. It is one of, I think, the, the least well-known, I think, particularly if you're from my generation or after gosh there are many after now um so i hope you've enjoyed that and i'm sorry if i tied myself in knots trying to address um i hate the phrase culture war but um and you know in the old days my instinct would immediately to go any whiff of racism needs to be attacked and i i I still feel that as well but i think people perhaps try to whiff it with too much glee where where you know there's nothing to be done i think there are I think there are other areas, and I think you devalue it if you're not careful. If you see, if you you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to attack it everywhere, it 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 may have existed, or you want to interpret it to exist, or you do interpret it to exist. But anyway, I worry about the its currency being diminished. But I, I come from a good place. I hope. I just, um, yeah, I see these arguments being had a lot, and it's quite, it's you know, it's sad, isn't it, that this is. This is where we're at. Whereas, because I think a lot of people arguing with each other, all actually want the same thing, but we then get finickety about the details and the whys and the wherefores and what constitutes, uh, you know, the, the 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 genetic makeup of each of the, the you know the, the of, of each of the specificities of each particular argument. And I think that lot involved then creates lots of internecine wrangling, and everyone wrangles, and nobody actually sorts anything out it's a it's a tricky world out there at the moment um, as i say maybe that's because i spent too much time scrolling on twitter and i need to read a good book um so maybe that's what i should do should i take twitter off my phone maybe i should maybe i should hmm. anyway uh the where's wally mug has made it to the end of this uh of this particular set of podcasts so We've made it to China without any getting broken. <laughs> oh, that was worth hanging around for, wasn't it? All right, ta-ta. <laughs>